0: Alright, my name is Katie Kuschminder and I am currently completing my PhD at Maastricht University. My PhD is on female return migration to Ethiopia and I look at three different types of returnees and one of them is domestic worker returnees from the Middle East. And I'm sure that many of you have heard about the conditions for domestic workers in the Middle East, the abuse, the challenges that they face. And when I was in Ethiopia, I was really quite struck by the fact that within Ethiopia as well, and as among, among these women who are looking to migrate, they also were very aware of the risks in migration, of the potential that you know they could be killed as a domestic worker, and the other things that could happen to them. But this, again, did not impact the n- number of people seeking to migrate to the Middle East, which is quite similar to what we also saw in um, some of the keynote sessions this morning. So I was quite interested in what was the role then of networks in this migration. And that led me to the following research questions. Uh, The first being, how do networks facilitate migration for Ethiopian domestic workers? And secondly, how do networks provide assistance to reduce the economic, social, and psychological costs of migration? So when I look at networks, I really focus on the social network literature. And it's important to note that when we discuss migration networks, so uh, network theory really in migration, it tends to infer strong ties in migration. Um, But when we look at the social network literature, there's a big differentiation between a strong tie and a weak tie. So in my study, when I look at the strong ties, these are really close ties, friends, um, people that are highly trusted and he can provide you with information on the route and migrating and they can provide support at the destination, such as finding employment, finding housing, um, and accessing services that the migrant might need. On the other hand, weak ties. Weak ties can uh, mean a a wider range of things. In my study I specifically focused on weak ties such as uh, labor brokers, recruiters, and smugglers. And in this case there's really low trust or no trust, for the migration. There's no assistance provided during migration or at destination. Often payment is involved, and there's a much higher risk in the migration. For both st- migrating via a strong tie or migrating via a weak tie, it's important to note that either one of these options can be legal or they can be irregular. So people can migrate legally or irregularly via strong ties or weak ties. And why is this important particularly for domestic workers? Well. Marina de has done um, a fair bit of work on domestic worker migration in Yemen and she argues that for domestic workers, migrating via a strong tie can result in three improved outcomes for them. So the first is that women may be better equipped for their work and life abroad. The second is that the presence of relatives and friends may facilitate women's adjustment to the new country and work environment. And the third is that employers, families, the woman will work for may be recommended by strong ties which increases the chances of being treated well. And what we'll see today in my presentation is actually is this third one that's really important because the character of the employer is one of the most important determinants in determining someone's treatment in the Middle East. So to give you an overview of my participants, I interviewed uh, 44 Ethiopian female returnees from the Middle East in Addis Ababa. Um, The majority were single and without children so this is also quite different from other domestic worker flows that we see for instance in the Philippines where many of the women are married and have children. Uh, The average age at migration was 21 and at the time of interview was 26. And this also reflects that they had a fairly short average duration abroad of 3.5 years. and the reason three years is quite important in the Ethiopian context is that by law, when a woman migrates to the Middle East, after three years the employer needs to pay for their return flight to Ethiopia, and they can return permanently here or they can return temporarily just for a visit and then return to their employer. But when you consider that the woman on average make a salary of 100 to 150 US dollars per month for them to be able to to afford a ticket to return prior to that three years is quite difficult. So regardless of the conditions that they're facing in the Middle East, they generally try to wait till the end of the three-year period to get the free ticket home. The main countries included in my sample were Lebanon, the United Arab Emirates, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. Virtually all of my participants were domestic workers. And the main reason that they told me that they were migrating was to improve themselves in their situations. So I kind of termed it within that there was really this myth of migration, that you could go abroad and you could change yourself and you could change your situation and bring positive changes back to your family. And um, there was a very strong hope that they could do this through their migration, but it was very rare that this was actually achieved. So um, how does migration from... Ethiopia to the Middle East work? Well, on the Middle East side, and virtually all Middle East countries, it's regulated by the kafala sponsorship system. And the kafala system makes an individual, national citizen, or a company sponsor legally and economically responsible for the foreign worker for the duration of the contract period. So, this is really a tied worker scheme where the domestic worker can only work for the one employer, and that employer is responsible for them entirely while they are in the country. And then on the Ethiopian side, there's four ways that women can migrate from Ethiopia to the Middle East. The first is through these licensed employment agencies. And these are agencies that are registered with the Ministry of Labor and Social Affairs to send people abroad. The key challenge here is that about four or five years ago, the Ethiopian government wanted to increase the standards for licensed employment agencies. And they implemented a new law that an agency needed to have a deposit of 5,000 U.S. dollars in order to be legal. And the purpose of that deposit is that it's supposed to be able to allow the agency to assist a worker if they're abroad and in need of assistance. But when they did this two-thirds of legal licensed employment agencies dropped out and became unlicensed employment agencies. So now we have a huge rise in the number of unemployed, unlicensed employment agencies in Ethiopia. They provide essentially the exact same service as the licensed employment agency, but they don't have this $5,000 deposit. And the real challenge is that you can't tell the difference. And, I mean, it's difficult for someone like me to look up and know, am I at a license or an unemployment office? They look the same from the outside. And it's even more difficult than for domestic workers to tell the difference. Um, The third way that they can migrate is through local brokers. So these are people in each community that uh, uh, recruit women to migrate abroad. And the fourth way is through networks, friends, and family. So essentially, the final three options are all irregular options. And the challenges in this is that, first of all, there's actually no evidence that migrating legally will enable further rights for the migrant worker. So we're seeing from the Ethiopian case that people who do migrate legally or illegally, it's not making a difference in their treatment or their experiences. Secondly... Migrants in Ethiopia frequently misunderstand legal migration. So in Ethiopia, there's a belief that there's an understanding that if you have a passport and you migrate, that you're migrating legally. One, in fact, that might not be true. And people are unaware of the differences then as to when it's legal or illegal migration. And thirdly, this whole system has really, and all these opportunities for migration, have really led to a large industry that makes female migration cheap and accessible and offers little protection for migrant workers in the Middle East. So, based on my sample, I decided to define, so what, based on my sample, was a good situation versus a bad situation in the Middle East. And it's important to note that, first of all, domestic workers in the Middle East are excluded from labour legislation. Their work is not considered as an employee, and there's no legal system to protect their rights. So their working conditions are really dependent on the conditions they face from their employer. Um, So for me, when i Based on the interviews I had, a good situation for somebody was where they worked 8 to 10 hours per day, they were responsible for one specific task, such as childcare, and they had a day off per week. A bad situation was one where they were working 18 hours or more per day, they were responsible for all tasks in the household, and they had no day off per week. And this could really escalate to the fact that over 50% of my sample, they experienced forms of abuse, including beatings, indentured labour, not receiving food, non-payment, sexual harassment, or verbal abuse. And there's really little to no recourse for abused migrants in the Middle East. So for all of these reasons, networks can be very important to provide access to information and support to protect one's rights in the Middle East. So how do networks help? So I've made a little table here to look at the differences between those who migrated via a strong tie versus a weak tie and had, um, although it's quite crude, but just for use of uh, discussion here, a successful migration experience or a failed migration experience. And I'd first like to tell you about the case of Gennett. And Gennett was a very unique case for me in the sample. Gennet was from a middle-class family. She had failed grade 10, which meant that she did not have the opportunity to go to university in Addis Ababa. And she was unemployed. She couldn't find work. So she thought that she should migrate. She had a sister-in-law working in Beirut, and she asked her sister-in-law to facilitate her migration. Her sister-in-law said, absolutely not. You stay in Ethiopia, you're not migrating. And she kept pestering the sister-in-law and said, if you don't help me, I'm going to go to a broker. So the sister-in-law acquiesced, and she said, okay, I'll help you. Her sister-in-law facilitated her migration, and when she arrived in Beirut, the sister-in-law met her at the airport. She took her to the house that she would be working in, and she stayed with her for the first three days to help her get accustomed to that house. Gennett had a really great situation. She worked for one couple, she had a day off per week, she was allowed to leave the house when she wanted to, she had reasonable working hours, and her employers were very nice to her. Eventually, she returned to Ethiopia due to an illness in her family, not because of her situation in the Middle East. In her case, the dense tie provided her secure employment in a good household. But this was a very rare situation that I found. I'd like to share with you then the second case of the situation of Betty. Betty had a negative migration experience migrating via a broker and she chose to migrate again via her mother's goddaughter she migrated to Abu Dhabi and was told that she was going to a good house this house um, the mother's goddaughter's sister had previously been employed there so this was a very good house but the sister needed to return home and now she would take her place But for her, the conditions were worse than her previous migration experience. She was not given any food to eat, and her employers were verbally abusive, and at one point went to hit her. She said she wanted to leave, but they refused to let her leave. After four months of begging to leave the house, they finally allowed her to return to Ethiopia. So we can see that in Betty's case, although she migrated via a strong tie, it did not help her in securing a good household in the Middle East. Even though she thought she was going to one, it didn't work out for her in the end. The third case that I'll share with you is Mulu. Um, Mulu's parents had passed away and she was living in extreme poverty in Addis Ababa. Her uncle's wife lived in Dubai and she discussed with her uncle and he said, I really think you should migrate and she agreed that this was the only way to provide income for her family. The uncle's wife went to an agency in Dubai and arranged her migration and she faced several challenges in the house upon arrival. However, Mulu was able to network with other domestic workers in the area where she lived in Dubai and they told her that her situation was bad and that it was not a good situation. But they coached her on how to behave and what to say so that she could be moved to another house. They told her to refuse to work and to say to the employers the right words and she did this and she was able to move houses. She ended up changing houses three different times until she was satisfied with her employer. She met an employer that she then liked and she worked with them for a few years. So in Mulu's case, it highlights the importance that not only can the tie that you migrate via, whether it's a strong tie or a weak tie, be important, but these networks upon arrival can also be really instrumental in providing protection and in ensuring your situation in the Middle East. And I'd like to contrast this with the last case of Salam. And Salam migrated via weak networks and she had a failed migration experience. So she was living in poverty, and she migrated through a broker. She migrated first to Yemen, she had a negative experience, she came back to Addis Ababa, still could not find work or support and income for herself and her family, and decided then that she should go to Abu Dhabi. Um, She went to Abu Dhabi and she was also not given any food in this household, but she also was not allowed to leave the household so she could not buy her own food. The only way that she could get food was by going outside and speaking over the fence to other domestic workers who would put food in a bag and throw it over the fence to her. Um, She was beaten by her employer and she regularly asked to return, but her employers refused, saying that she needed to pay back the money they'd spent on her ticket. After one year and seven months, she finally was able to afford the money to buy her own ticket back to Ethiopia, and she returned to Ethiopia with nothing. Versions of Salam's story are very um, frequent within my interviews of women who migrate via these weak ties and who really have failed migration experience where they're not allowed to able to achieve their goals. So, in conclusion, where does this bring us? Well, first of all, I think it's important to point out that the majority of Ethiopian migration to the Middle East is female migration via weak ties. And this places women in a vulnerable position without known connections for assistance either during their migration or upon arrival. Secondly. Network ties cannot necessarily overcome the, constructual, the structural constraints for migrants in the Middle East. So of the cases that I showed you, of the cases that migrated via a strong tie, two-thirds did not ha- provide protection in the Middle East despite the fact that they migrated via this strong tie. So even when people are migrating via a strong tie, there is still a large risk in their migration. And thirdly, networks are important for access to information and resources upon arrival. So, as we saw in the case of uh, Mulu, these networks are really important. Upon arrival, it's important to be able to develop networks to get access to further information. However, many women are barred from leaving the house in in the Middle East. They're not allowed to own cell phones and they're not allowed to create these networks. And these networks can be very vital, vital sources of information. And finally, as we saw with the Duraget, and I want to return to it, the character of the employer is the most central element in determining migration experience of domestic workers in the Middle East. This is, you can see that by the, by the explanation of the kafala system and how it regulates migration to the Middle East and is dependent on the employer, the character of the employer is one of the most determining factors in whether they're going to have a positive or negative experience. But the unfortunate part is that the majority of women have no way of knowing the character of the employer prior to migration. So if strong ties can connect them to a good employer, as it did for instance with the first case in Betty, they have played a vital role in providing protection for women in the Middle East. But the number of women where the cases where this happens are very few. But if there's a way to encourage this, then this could actually potentially help to provide further protection for women in the Middle East. Um, so this is really you know, a preliminary analysis comparing strong ties and weak ties, but I do think that this is something that could be explored further and how migration via different types of networks results in outcomes for migrants. Thank you very much.